Hello, hello. And welcome again to a Beatles talk show podcast, which is called Things We Said Today. This is a bi-weekly show in which we talk about anything and everything that has to do with the Beatles. Could be about their group years, their solo careers, any of their songs or albums, things that happen in Beatle history. We cover it all here on this show, including the current news as well. I'm Ken Michaels, one of the three regular co-hosts of the show, also known for my syndicated Beatles radio program called Baby Little Thing, and a bi-weekly talk show podcast, a video podcast, on the solo Beatles called Talk More Talk. And I'm being joined by my two regulars. First of all, a man who has been at New York's WFUV for now over 35 years. He is, without a doubt, the backbone of that radio station. He's what's kept it all together. He's their Beatle guy, and I'm really building him up here. He's very embarrassed, I can tell. And I sharpen all the pencils at the station. (laughs) He's not kidding, though. That's uh, that's our own Darren DeVivo. Hi, Darren. Hello. Oh, how are you, Ken? How you doing, Alan? Hello, everyone. Mm-hmm. It's great to be on board. Our other co-host has been with us for quite some time now, ever since uh, we added him to the show with um, Al Sussman many years back. And for many years, he worked in the classical department at the New York Times. He writes for Beatle Fan. He writes for the Wall Street Journal. He's authored a number of Beatle books, including Got That Something, How the Beatles I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything, and From the Cavern to the Rooftop, and that's our own Alan Cozen. Hi, Alan. Hello, Ken. Hello, everyone. On today's program, we're going to be talking about one of Ringo's solo albums, and I'm very curious to find out what everyone's opinion is of this particular album, and it happens to be his debut, his very first solo album released in 1970 called Sentimental Journey. We're going to be talking about that in a few minutes from now. But first, as we do in all of our shows, we get to the latest in Beatle news. And um, the number one news item, certainly for me, and I've been waiting to see if this news would become official, is that Paul McCartney's Explorers Edition, it's being called, of Egypt Station, is really going to come out. It's coming out on May the 17th. And this is going to be basically everything that's on the regular album for Egypt Station, plus the two bonus tracks that was on the Target version, Get Started and Nothing for Free. The digital song that came out the beginning of this year called Get Enough. And there's two entirely new songs, one called Frank Sinatra's Party. (laughs) I'm very curious what that's going to sound like, if it's going to be anything like a Frank Sinatra song. Who knows? And um, there's a song called 62nd Street. There's a long version of Who Cares? And there's four live recordings, one each from a different venue. And um, as I said, it's coming out May the 17th. There'll be a two-CD set for this. There's a three-disc, 180-gram vinyl version. And it's also coming out digitally. And I also heard that there's a colored vinyl version coming out for this as well. Of course. So, for all of us who uh, really mainly care about the music and not everything that was on the Traveler's Edition, uh, this is more to your liking. So, I am definitely looking forward to this. Darren? Absolutely. Do you want to say anything? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, absolutely looking forward to this. <laughs> but I have to admit, and this happens as I get older and older, all of this confuses me. So, I can't, I just buy. And I am still one of the only people I know of who is waiting for a suitcase to come in the mail uh, with the, what is it, puzzles, playing cards, chewed up, uh-huh. chewing gum, and all that good stuff that's in there. But the expedition sounds, uh, I guess this is what we were told about back all the way back day one, that there would be an expanded version of the album, you know, going back to when it was first released. And I guess this is it. So... I'm there. Count me in. Yeah. Well, like I've said on the show, I don't care about all the other stuff. I don't care about the suitcase and the, the jigsaw puzzle and all that. I just care about the music. But something like the Traveler's Edition really is for the collector because it's limited edition. Paul knows that. He's catering to that crowd. I don't get upset that he puts that stuff out there because he knows that there are people who, who live for this stuff. There are people who gobble up everything that comes out 
all the colored vinyl, you name it. So Paul is aware of that, and he's giving those people what they want. For someone like myself who only really cares about the music, this is really, you know, what I've been waiting for. Alan? Well, I'm also waiting for the suitcase, and... Uh, <laughs> oh, you did get the suitcase? Yeah. Um, All right, good. I forgot you had bought it. Now, good, there's two of us. Yeah, uh, and, you know, and, and actually, I know a lot of people now that they have gone public with this that are canceling their orders for the suitcase, and all things being equal, I might have done that um, because, like Ken, I'm, I'm mostly interested in the music. I don't care about the suitcases or the puzzles or the whatever. To me, that's just sort of silly, and it's going to be a waste of room, and it was a huge, you know, waste of money. But I can't cancel it because there are apparently some Easter eggs. <laughs> so there, there still will be a couple of tracks um apparently in the suitcase edition that aren't listed now granted those things will instantly find their way to the internet i'm sure of it but you know it seems to me that i, I like to have the official versions of everything and if it means buying a suitcase well i've already you know i've already paid for it like that that money is basically theoretically gone so while i could cancel the off order and buy you know more of the vinyl versions of this one i think i'm just gonna let it stand i probably will get this one too of course because you know as a discographer one needs to have them on hand and you know how it is but mm. the upside is since i do this professionally it is tax deductible <laughs> yes, it is absolutely. So a few a few bucks that might otherwise go to building a wall somewhere are going to be withheld from my taxes. <laughs> so building you know, suitcases. <laughs> there are people who buy something like this, like the Traveler's Edition, as an investment, and think later on they'll just resell it and make a big profit. So. Yeah, you know, you wonder, there's, there's, there's no telling, really, whether it will appreciate, you know, to that degree, but it, it might. I mean, it is a limited edition, and, you know, it happens. Mm. And those Easter eggs you're referring to, I know that some of it's video mm -hmm. content. Yeah. So uh, this, is the, this is the time of the show when I get extra friendly with Darren and Alan, you know, because I know that they have this <laughs> other stuff that I'm going to need very soon. From my work. So um, my two best friends, Alan and Darren, are getting the uh, the Traveler's Edition here. And sure would love to uh, hear and see the extra material. I, I, I always said you, you use us for our stuff. <laughs> yeah, you we'll, only love we'll set you up, Ken. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. In, uh, in other news, Ringo Starr's albums, Ringo's Rotogravure and Ringo the Fourth, are being remastered for vinyl release from the Good Friday label. No release date is being given yet, but it's coming soon. This is the same company that recently put out Bad Boy mm. on vinyl. And uh, I guess, Darren, you're picking that up? Oh, yeah, I'll get them. Sure, why the heck not? Money's no object. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, I actually think I have two different colored Bad Boys. I there never are... really got to the bottom of who put out what and why. Mm. But anyway, yeah, I'll probably be getting them. All right. Uh, we just heard how the Beatles' own recording of Health is being used right now in a TV commercial for Google. Well, here comes the sun. Not the Beatles' recording, but one covered by another artist is being used for Xfinity. And I, don't, I didn't even hear um, any of the song lyrics. I just heard an instrumental version of Here Comes the Sun for that. A new book is coming out called Tell Me What You See, The Ultimate Guide to John Paul George Ringo on TV and Video by Peter Chexfield. Amazon lists that the book includes every appearance in the Beatles' performance of Some Other Guy at the Cavern in 1962 to Paul's new video for Who Cares in December 2018. This book is a listing of every known TV performance, promotional video, and live telecast from the Beatles' group and solo careers. It also includes chart positions, band lineups, anecdotes and more and a puzzle <laughs> and not and a, a puzzle <laughs> and, and easter eggs <laughs> hey, oh, uh, let's see 
an upright piano that John Lennon used to compose some of the songs for the Sgt. Pepper album. It has just been sold at an auction for $718,000 to Jim Ursay, who is the owner of the Indianapolis Colts and a noted Beatle maniac and memorabilia collector. John gave this piano to a friend, but first he had a plaque affixed to it that read, On This Piano Was Written. A day in the life, Lucy in the sky with diamonds, good morning, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite and many others, John Lennon, 1971. And Ursay also owns a 1963 drum kit that Ringo used on the Beatles' early hits. Wow. See if the Jets <laughs> can trade a couple of draft picks to get those items. <laughs> um, more news. Paul McCartney is attacking the UK government after Liverpool's Institute for Performing Arts lost 17 million pounds in funding. Paul co-founded the Institute, and he says a series of errors made in 2016 cost the Institute in potential funding and a further 160,000 pounds for the initial steps of, of a judicial review. Our funding was recently affected by what to me and the heads of every university in Liverpool was a flawed process. Lippa is my passion and part of my legacy. It would not be fair to allow injustice to affect its future. Paul, definitely very uh, affected by this. That, that's good. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's 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 it it shows that like that, that this is important to him. That it's not just something that he sort of did as a a one off charity deal. And you know, he's he does he turns up there every year. Uh, that's right. You know, does a little bit of teaching. Um, presides over the. Uh, you know, graduation ceremonies, things like that. I mean, he's he's really kind of put his imprimatur on it, and uh, I, I like that. Yeah, definitely. And I think there are certain awards that are given out every single year, and Paul is there for that. Mm-hmm. So um, he's very good at championing this kind of thing and, and uh, having a very positive effect on the students. There's always lots of news about the Beatles' sons these days. Uh, Danny Harrison is keeping busy in addition to opening for jeff lynn and the elo tour for north american dates danny appears on a new track from uncle called days and nights which you can now listen to on youtube and he'll be on perry farrell's upcoming album kind heaven which is due out june the 7th the documentary film on george harrison's film company handmade films called an accidental studio is set to debut on amc british tv on may the 4th Be on the lookout here to see when and if it airs in the U.S. I did check my uh, the AMC website before doing the show, and it's not listed yet, but um, I'll be sure to relay that information on this show and also on Facebook if I know anything more about that. The Who are getting set to tour with North American Dates starting May the 7th. And as you probably know, who's on drums? Zach Starkey. So uh, good to see that they're going to be back on the road. And finally, some concert dates uh, you might be interested in in the New York area. Billy J. Kramer returning to the Cutting Room in New York City. That'll be on May the 19th. And Lawrence Juber giving a show at the Iridium in the city. That's on May the 30th. That's it for Beatle News. Okay? So... Our main topic on the show this time is Ringo's first solo album, Sentimental Journey, which came out in 1970, March in the UK, and April for the US. And um, this, was, um, this was an album of all music standards, for the most part pre-rock and roll, and um, a very interesting way to start our few solo career. I don't think anybody would have expected this coming from any of the Beatles, really, to do a full album of this. But uh, as I've said on the radio, since I've been doing Beatles radio programs in 1982, I think Ringo should be applauded in a way because I don't recall anybody else who's known as being a rock and roller who did something like this and went 180 degrees differently to cover songs that predated rock and roll. And it eventually led to Harry Nilsson doing an album just like this. Linda Ronstadt had several albums that were very successful mm-hmm. with Nelson Riddle as the conductor. 
Rod Stewart had many successful albums doing the same thing. And then more recently, Paul McCartney did the same thing with Kisses on the Bottom. So, you know, to start off your career like this, really, it's kind of unusual. Not only did he do this in 1970, but he followed that with an all-country album. So you would have thought that Ringo would have put out a rock album. And then what's kind of uh, interesting is that ever since those first two albums, Ringo's never gone back to doing that. Ugh. He's never put out an album of uh, standards music standards like this ever again he's never done an album of all country music ever again even though a lot of people have pointed out how suitable his voice is for country music and i think bukus of blues in particular has really become more respected through the years as one of ringo's finest albums and people have asked him if he considered making another country album again but um ever since the ringo album of 1973 and also the two successful singles of Don't Come Easy and Back Off Boogaloo before the Ringo album. It's been all pop and rock ever since. But the first album that Ringo made was this album of standards. And I want to get both your opinions of um, what you think of the album. And first of all, what, what you thought of Ringo starting off his career, his solo career this way. Why don't we start with you, Darren? Well, uh, one, one uh, quick thing when you made mention that Ringo never went back to this material or the country uh, he also i guess sort of dismissed these two albums because in 1977 when his sixth album comes out he calls it ringo the fourth mm -hmm. sort of disregarding albums one and two and kind of counting starting with the the ringo album so you could say he was probably somewhat dismissive of Sentimental Journey and Bukus of Blues. But um, I interviewed Ringo when Ringo Rama had come out in 2003. And I remember mentioning, and I don't know if it was casual after the interview was over or if it was within the body of the interview, that he was ahead of his time. He was a trendsetter with Sentimental Journey because so many artists years and years later would tap into this, as you pointed out, Ken. Mm. Uh, and in some cases, with Linda Ronstadt, especially with Rod Stewart, they reinvented their careers with this material. Ringo did it first. And Ringo did it, now that we look back at it, we have the luxury here of looking back decades to this album. Take into consideration what you've already alluded to, Ken, is what an interesting choice for a first solo album uh, and what an interesting choice for anyone in the rock genre to do an album like Sentimental Journey, because even though the material wasn't that old at that time, there still, I think, was a very big gap. There was the generation gap. And that was old folks music. That was mm -hmm. mom and dad's music. You know, that was um, not where pop musicians went rock musicians or whatever you know you want to refer to uh you know the the young rock musicians at that point nobody was going back doing sinatra stuff and and uh stuff from that era uh and here's ringo deciding a i'm going to do this material b i'm going to do it with my folks and my family in mind and it's going to be my first solo album and that's a pretty pretty very pretty interesting perhaps ballsy thing for Ringo to do. You would think that as as the, the drummer, and by no means am I trying to belittle drummers or Ringo, he would have the most to prove and the most to lose if he was serious about wanting to launch a solo career. So you'd think he would have played it safe with an album that's like Ringo, right down the middle. Mm -hmm. Special guests can't miss songs, but uh, Ringo was... Uh, Again, as I told him in 2003, a trendsetter and ahead of his time in choosing to do an album of entirely made up of, uh, you know, I always, you know, these, the material gets referred to so many different ways, standards, songs from the great American songbook, uh, et cetera. Uh, and he did the, did the album with, uh, again, with his parents in mind. It was music he uh, listened to growing up in his home. Uh, so he did it as a nod to them. Mm -hmm. And he really also didn't do the album as a knockoff. 
he went in head first and 100% recruiting George Martin to produce it, bringing in many different arrangers to arrange the material. Right. So it was not something that was like uh, an afterthought and whipped together in a couple of weeks. It was a, a project that uh, Ringo spent time on, and I think uh, he started recording it pretty much in the late 69, taking up uh, potentially three, four, five months to record the material. So uh, it's a very important album. I think it's, you know, even without digging into the material and how he interprets it, it's an important album for all these things that I've said and, and what you've said, Ken, and, and what Alan's about to say, I'm sure, uh, about its place in pop music 1970. However, one point I'd like to make is that anytime an artist does something that later on could be looked upon as being groundbreaking or being a trendsetter, they don't go out thinking that's what they're going to be. This is just what Ringo felt like doing in the moment. Right. Nobody knew what was going to follow, that all these other artists were going to do the same thing. But I like what you said about um, Ringo could have gone the easy route and done a pop rock album just like the Ringo album was. And ever since then, that's what he's done. You know, but to start off his career like this, it was it was really unusual. One more thing before I lose my thought, because the album just beat Paul McCartney's first solo album to the stores by a matter of weeks, it was the first non avant garde solo album by a Beatle. Well, you still. Well, I mean, I don't know. I would still consider Wonderwall's kind of sort of experimental. Wonderwall, you can't call a pop rock album. It's a soundtrack album, really. It's scoring music. Okay. But I don't. Well, it could be a bit experimental because of all the Indian music in there, too. But right. uh, there was also a live piece in Toronto. Don't forget. Yeah, and and maybe Yoko's half would make people say it's a half an album or it's an experimental album in, 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 in the presence of what she did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, how about you? What do you think about Ringo starting off his career, launching his career this way? Um, okay, I can uh, maybe uh, offer a little bit of context, at least from what I remember of the time and... Um, what how i you know have looked back at it um i think that you know ringo actually said quite a lot at the time about how he was doing this mainly as sort of a gift to his parents um but he was releasing it uh as an album and i think there were a couple of things going on there one is He's saying, basically, without saying, I am a quarter owner of a record company, and John's been putting out his experimental stuff, and why should I not put out something that I just feel like doing because I've always loved these songs, too? You know, keep in mind that while we think of it as, or thought of, I thought of it at the time as old people's music, these guys grew up with this music, you know? This mm -hmm. is what was being played on the radio when they were very small. Their parents knew it. They knew the songs, you know? We didn't know them as well as they knew them because when we were growing up, we didn't really hear that stuff that much, you know? You know someone might sing one of those songs on the Ed Sullivan show or, you know, or something like that, uh, but, but it wasn't what, at least... I was paying attention to. Um, so when the album came out, I thought, okay, I mean, you know, and I think maybe there was also um, a bit of a question about whether, okay, I'm going to do this album. I have my own record company. I want to do it. I like these songs. I'm bringing in arrangers. I'm actually making a big production of this. I'm also curious to know whether as a member of the Beatles, putting out something that is so completely un-Beatle, if it's going to sell, you know, will people buy it just because the four of us are former Beatles? Um, and I think that was something that they might have all been curious about. When it came out, I really didn't know what to make of it because it wasn't music I listened to. It wasn't music I imagined ever listening to. 
But, you know, as you've both said, Ringo was sort of ahead of his time here and other pop stars began doing it too. And when I first began listening to these songs or material from the American Songbook, as they call it now, when Linda Ronstadt put out her discs with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra, um, and I was really taken with a lot of those songs, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, that kind of thing. And um, I was talking to a friend of mine who is a jazz critic um, named Gene Santoro, and he listened to me talk about the Linda Ronstadt album for a while, and he said, for God's sakes, Alan, get yourself an Ella Fitzgerald album. And I went out and got Ella Fitzgerald doing it, and, you know, that was a whole different world. I mean, that's where these songs really live. None of the pop guys who've done them can equal that kind of interpretation it's interesting that they've done them but anyway looking back now on Ringo's I mean I listened to it again this morning listened to it last week uh, when we began talking about doing this and you know periodically play it when I just go through you know all, a lot of Ringo stuff um, and I like it a lot more than I did when it came out um, now I know the songs a bit better Ringo is not um, Ella or Frank, that's for sure. There are places where he strains a little bit at the top. But Ringo's voice has, I, I think I've said this before when we've talked about other records of his, his voice is so characterful and has so mm -hmm. much personality. And is so, you know, you, you only need to listen to about four seconds of it to know it's Ringo. And I think he's doing what he can to account for you know his vocal weaknesses like a lot of these songs are double tracked and i think that you know that makes him sound a little stronger plus the beatles were always double tracking so it kind of brought the songs into a more familiar vocal sound for you know those of us who were more familiar with the beatles things and uh as for why he didn't do a rock record you know i think he was beginning to write some of his stuff. I think It Don't Come Easy was something he was working on while he was recording this. That's right. Um, and I think that he maybe just hadn't sort of figured out what kind of rock album he'd want to do, because if you look at the stuff he did with the Beatles, it was either, and, until obviously um, Don't Pass Me By and Octopus's Garden, it was either written for him by John and Paul, or he would take country hits or rockabilly hits and do covers of them. Um, that's why Boo Coops of Blues was not as big a surprise as this was. You know, you kind of always knew that he had these country leanings. And I think maybe he was just trying to figure out, you know, t taking his time to figure out what he was going to do. And he tried a few different things before the Ringo album and then sort of settled into that. But, hmm. anyway. I have a question for you, Alan. Did you get Sentimental Journey when it was uh, newly released? Mm, probably not. I probably got it a few years later. Okay. Heard a bit of it on the radio. Um, you do. That was another, my next question. Yeah, not um, a lot. The but... reaction, did it get, you know, maybe maybe some spins more as, as a novelty? Listen to this. Mm -hmm. uh, did it get any, like, say, FM rock radio exposure when it came out? Uh, very little. It was like you say, it was more as like a curiosity. You know, we, we've got Ringo's new album. We're going to play a couple of cuts for you, you know. But it, you know, didn't stay on the playlist or even probably get on the playlist. Uh, and do you recall also perhaps your your parents or someone else hearing you play it, like when it was you had just brought it home and what their thoughts on these songs being interpreted by not just a Beatle, but by a rock contemporary rock musician. Uh, yeah, no, I, I didn't have any, I, I didn't play it for anyone. And, and, okay. and, and I think I did get it a little bit later. So wouldn't have been, um, I didn't tend to play my records for my parents that much. You know, we, we had our own separate listening habits. Yeah. I had, well, I, I grew up in, in, in like a three room apartment. So my parents had no choice. <laughs> uh, but I was like, I, I was, just weeks away from my fifth birthday when it when it came out sentimental journey and to me it was that one of those uh when the blue, red and blue albums came out and it came with that uh, 
that uh, giveaway uh, flyer that listed out the catalog of other releases that were available from the Beatles. Sentimental Journey was always, that's all it was to me, was a listing on that printout until many years later when I picked up a copy. I think I found a sealed original of it on vinyl. And, uh, and then really when it popped up on CD in the 90s, in the early 90s, was when I really sunk my teeth into that and Buku's of Blues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you're very young, like, let's just say your first five years, you're not going to be aware of every release as it happens. No, I had, yeah, I had no recollection. Although yeah. I had It Don't Come Easy, well, that was, a, you know, on, a, on the AM radio, that was a big hit song, but mm. uh, not a clue to, for many years about Sentimental Journey. It's a pity because, you know, actually, if you had heard it at five... You wouldn't have had any of the attitudes that someone my age back then would have had about how this is, well, this is parents' music, and, you know, it would no, have just I been a song have. to you. I, I'd been curious, like, what you would have made of it. Well, especially since a lot of the material on Sentimental Journey was typical of what I would hear growing up at home, because, uh, you know, my, my, my dad mainly bought bought the records for him, and my, my mom, and it was a lot of, you know, I grew up in an Italian-American house in the uh, apartment in the uh, in the Bronx. So it was a lot of uh, Sinatra and Tony Bennett and Jerry Vale, and there was an Ella Fitzgerald album in there, and, you know, uh, uh, Johnny Mathis and uh, Sergio Franchi and all of those. And these songs Ooh. were popping up, would pop up on, you know, Barbara Streisand. My dad was a big Streisand fan, so he had a handful of her albums so uh, actually, if I had Ringo's Sentimental Journey when it was fairly new, I probably wouldn't have bat, you know, it would have fit right in with everything else. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of Beatle albums in the mix for me, and uh, and Ringo's record would have, you know, fit right in. I had the same experience as you did, Darren, because my parents brought me up on all that music that you just said. Right. They loved 30s and 40s music. They loved Big Band. They loved the Crooners. Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Barbara Streisand. You know, I grew up in New York. I used to listen to, in the car with my parents, WNEW AM, which, which played all that kind of music, adult standards. Absolutely. I grew up on that. That was a very big part of my life. It still is. And, um, you know, I'm curious to find out, because you had asked Alan, Darren, about FM airplay, if a station like WNEW would have even touched Ringo's album when it came out yeah that's a very good question i'd wonder that too if they also maybe took a little bit of a if they even cared if any wam would uh, treat it as a novelty hey a beetle has done night and day you know i doubt they they played it regularly but you know or they might have thought you know what right does a beetle have to be tackling stuff (laughs) i mean i i think that the bits of it that i heard would have been on NEW because that was what I listened to at that time. Yeah, and... FM. Yeah, FM. And, you know, I mean, you know, Scott and his things from England and all that stuff. And uh, and, and they were pretty freewheeling about what they played. So, at, at, at that time, anyway. Um, mm. So, yeah, that would have been it. And, yeah, I, I don't know that the DJs... Uh, my impression, I mean, it's very vague now. It's uh, like 49 years ago. But my impression was that they didn't really know what to make of it either, you know. The only one who would who was on WNEWFM would have been Jonathan Schwartz, whose heart really was on the AM side. Um, right. You know, I mean, I remember Jonathan Schwartz playing zippity doo for about 15 minutes straight over and over <laughs> once on WNEWFM. So that's Jeez. how freewheeling they were. <laughs> what, um, something about uh, Sentimental Journey that I mentioned uh, that Ringo really uh, took a very serious approach with this album, with the different arrangers that mm-hmm. were brought in. Mm-hmm. And it's really an eclectic, even the, even the art, the arrangers brought in to work on the tracks, a very eclectic uh, uh, group of people ranging from Paul McCartney to Morris Gibb from the Bee Gees mm-hmm. and, and Klaus Vorman. Uh, and then on the other side of the coin, you have, Quincy Jones and and Elmer Bernstein and Chico O'Farrell and George Martin and a guy who would actually end up being 
uh, a producer for Ringo, Richard Perry. That's and there's right. a, a few more that I didn't mention, too. So it's John kind of Dankworth. an interesting. Let's not forget John Dankworth. I mean, he was a right. jazz guy. and uh... Oliver Nelson, uh, Les Reed. If we could have, actually, I think I hit on almost all of them there. That's, that's a pretty impressive, extremely eclectic group of people brought in to arrange these songs. So there was a lot of care put into, uh, into this album. This was not just a knockoff. From mom and dad, and who cares if anyone else, you know, mm-hmm. Ringo so, I think was, was would have was looking. It would have been, you know, was looking to see, you know, maybe I could turn some people on to this material who are not familiar with it or who might, you know, normally say, "Nah, that's dad's music. That's that's grandpa's music." Mm. Well, you know, from what I've read, there seems to be some doubt as to whether or not Paul McCartney was involved with the arrangement of Stardust. So, um, because I don't think they have the paperwork to prove it, and we don't know for certain if he did, in fact, do the arrangement for that song. But I do love that arrangement, and it's one of the the absolute highlights of that album for me. But, yeah, it is very impressive, that list of all the different arrangers. Les Reed, by the way, who you just mentioned, just passed away. And uh, for anyone that doesn't know, he was a, a very successful songwriter who co-wrote a couple of huge hits for Tom Jones, like It's Not Unusual, and Delilah. And he also uh, had a hand in writing There's a Kind of Hush for Herman's Hermits. Hmm. And uh, everybody knows for the Dave Clark Five. And he was also known for being an orchestra leader, too, and an arranger. So, uh, yeah, that's someone else that contributed to Sentimental Journey. But it's interesting to, like, where did Maurice Gibb come from <laughs> as an arranger, you know, to be yeah. picked for something like this? So, um, it's, and Klaus Vorman, too. And Klaus Vorman, too. I, I was just uh, picking through some information. It was recorded very slowly, and it was recorded over uh, a period of... Uh, Six months. Months, yeah. On and off, different studios... Uh, late 69, a break for the holidays. Ringo came back to it in January and spent another couple of months. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was a lot of care was put into this record. So it's uh, not something to just be dismissed here. But uh, if there's any fault with the album, I really enjoy the album. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, of course, my opinion would, of it today would have probably been much different, you know, if I had it in seventy. Uh, but the only thing is the arrangements do tend to get a little corny at times. But this is, I think, the way the material was treated at that time, you know, in a kind of a uh, I don't know, better, better word than corny to say. But uh, mm. the way the material might have been treated at that point, as opposed to today, uh, the arrangements would have been approached a little differently. Uh, I don't know if you uh, can, you know, understand what I'm trying to get at there with the. Uh, some of the tracks. Uh, I, I think, definitely think. You, um, have I told um, you lately that I love yes. you? It's kind of, you know, or, you know, something that would have come off the, like the Carol Burnett show or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know what you're saying. I agree with you. See, but I, um, I think of it as more tongue in cheek than corny. But maybe that's yeah, because, yeah, absolutely, sure. You know, and, and in <laughs> fact, that that arrangement in particular, you know, has a lot of things that I thought were just sort of funny and deliberately funny. You know, I could be wrong, but that's how I hear it. Sounds like that's the kind of backing point. you would have heard on laughing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but um, one thing that's often mentioned about Ringo is his limited vocal range. But yet on this particular album, I don't feel like he's tackled any songs that are really that difficult to sing. So I think that they were wisely picked. I know that you said, Alan, that there might have been a moment when he strained vocally. I never picked up on that. Well, listen to Night and Day again. There's a bit of that in there. And uh, there were a few uh, Stardust as well, strains a little. There were a few. I mean, but he... He chose fairly wisely. He chose stuff that is was mostly in his range, but the ones that get a little bit high or um, to me sounded a bit strained. And I think the double tracking helps a bit. Um, 
right. it makes a it makes a more sort of solid sound. And if uh, you know, if I you've got basically two takes to put your strongest voice forward, and if if one of them isn't so strong, the other one might be. So you know, it really does help. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's that, that I think is where is is in a way the weakest part of the album. I mean, the arrangements are really interesting and really well played. It's the vocals that I think uh, for a lot of people, the album is going to stand or fall on. And if you like Ringo's voice because you like Ringo, you like the character, you like the character that the voice evokes for you, um, mm-hmm. you'll forgive a lot more than if you just want to hear a spectacular vocal interpretation of these songs. And I think that's where I am. I, I, I think I'm being forgiving, but I realize I'm being forgiving. I'm, I'm saying, well, you know, okay, you know, I, I, maybe I should be listening to Ella or Frank or Tony Bennett or, or someone if I want to hear these songs done as well as they possibly can be. But I like hearing Ringo do stuff, so, uh, you know, I'm fine with this. Well, I kind of feel like you don't have to be Frank Sinatra to sing these songs for those people. And unlike your friend who didn't seem to feel that Linda Ronstadt covering it was justified <laughs> in, in her recordings of it, I think she, she carried it off extremely well. She's a great balladeer, and she's got a tremendous voice. You know, Linda Ronstadt does. Is there, is, there, is there a little bit, though, of an instance there where, you know, somebody might take a bit of a snobbish approach and be dismissive of Linda Ronstadt's versions because huh, it's just Linda Ronstadt. She's a pop singer. What is she, you know, uh, when in reality there was some really some substance, a lot of substance on her interpretations? It's possible. But I think it really has more to do with expecting the song, the songs to be interpreted in a particular way with a particular quality of voice that she didn't quite reach. But I mean, what you got to say for Linda Ronstadt's versions is that they turned a lot of people on to this music, including me. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and you could say the same for Ringo's version. You could say the same for Rod Stewart's probably, you know. I mean, these are guys whose audience don't normally listen to this music. And they're saying, this is good stuff, too. You should give this stuff a spin. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's basically a, a good thing, even if you don't end up you know, thinking of them as the great interpreters of it, they've nevertheless turned you on to it, and that's something. But you know, you use that word character voice, and there's nothing wrong with being a character voice. Mm-hmm. There are people like Louis Armstrong, who was an amazing trumpet player. I don't know, most people would say he was a great singer, but he had his own interpretation of songs the way that he sang them vocally. Right. Jimmy Durante was not a great singer, but there are people who love the way that he projected his voice onto those songs. I'm not saying that Ringo was Louis Armstrong here uh, or Jimmy Durante, but the character of the voice plays a part. And like we said, these are not, at least to my ears, vocally demanding songs. And I think he carried them across well. And there are certain tracks in particular, like Stardust, which I think are outstanding, and Whispering Grass is a favorite of mine. You know, I grew up on a lot of this music too, but some of those songs were new to me. I never heard Whispering Grass before. I never heard Blue Turning Gray Over You, which was a song that Louis Armstrong did around 1930. So when I first heard this album, which was probably close to around when it came out, it didn't startle me much, you know, Mm -hmm. because I was used to hearing these songs. And having been used to Ringo's voice through the Beatles records, I think he carried himself across pretty well. The thing is, this is also the first time you're hearing a full Ringo album for a lot of people. So they're not used to hearing an entire album of Ringo vocals. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a tough listen for some people when they're used to hearing more John or Paul or even George than Ringo. And... All Beatle fans are aware that Ringo has the the weakest of the of the four of them for vocals, but it suits its purpose 
And, you know, for these kind of songs, they do work really well. The Beatles knew how to write songs for Ringo. The songs that Ringo has recorded in his solo career, for the most part, are not vocally demanding. And they work, you know, for that reason mm -hmm. on those recordings. So, um, you know, but I don't think that Ringo has been given credit for this. I mean, we're talking about it as though, you know, he was groundbreaking and we point to all these other people. But I, outside of maybe a Beatles program like ours, you're not going to hear people saying, well, you know, Ringo did it before all those others. Have um, you uh, heard uh, John Lennon's assessment of Sentimental Journey? What he told uh, Rolling Stone magazine when the album was out, that it was an embarrassment. So John wow. was not uh, particularly pleased with uh, Ringo's album. George liked it, but uh, John didn't think too much of it. Uh, you know, also points to Ringo for, you know, really as soon it must have been so clear internally in the fall of 69 that the end had come for the band. I mean, we didn't know this. The fans didn't know it. The general public didn't know it initially. But it must have been pretty clear internally that, you it know, was. it was clear it's internally um, a month before Ringo started recording this album. So Ringo jumped, uh, you know, with no hesitation mm -hmm. to do something on his own. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to, you know, I'm not just the drummer here. I'm, I've got something to offer. Let's get to work right off the bat. And his album even comes out before Beats McCartney's by a couple of weeks. So Ringo, uh, Ringo was there was no hesitating in Ringo's mind about the, the fact that he may not have been the equal to John and Paul, but he definitely had something that he could bring to the table. And I'm getting to work on my own record. John and Yoko can belch for an entire album. I got my own thing I'm going to do here and, you know, establish myself as Ringo star, the solo artist as well. You know, in Tune In, Mark Lewison talks about the idea of young musicians coming up and, the, and this, this idea in British entertainment that one should be an all-around entertainer. And the Beatles kind of went against that. They specialized in what they did. They kind of broke that mold. But it's possible that, you know, there was a, a lurking sense of, you know, one should be able to do that for all of them and certainly for Ringo and maybe that's what he's trying to accomplish here too. It's like, okay, I've been a rock star, I can do this now, you know. But um, you know, you look at you look at the Beatles catalog and their music is so rich in so many different styles. Right. And they were appealing to so many different age groups. Yeah. The fact that they were doing something like Till There Was You, you know, and debuting that on the Ed Sullivan show the first time that most of us ever saw them, mm -hmm. they were thinking I'm trying to appeal to more than just one age group. Yeah. I mean, there's not a, a as, as, a, as songwriting goes, there's not a huge gulf between till there was you and some of the stuff on, on sentimental journey. I mean, it's, it's pretty much of a piece in a way. I mean, that's theater music rather than great American songbook music, but a lot of the stuff from the songbook began in the theater as well. Right. I think we should also point out, since, you know, at least some of us live for unreleased stuff, mm -hmm. <laughs> there is one known outtake from this album that is out there. Um, it's been bootlegged. I don't think it has turned up as a bonus track anywhere. Uh, Not yet. But that is Stormy Weather, Harold Arlen's song. Right. Uh, oh, well. No one seems to be able to find out who did the arrangement but it was uh george martin conducted the orchestra and um i wonder why it's an outtake because it's a, it's there's nothing about it that doesn't stand up to you know the standard of the rest of the album and it's a good song uh so but it's 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 floating out there for uh completists who want to search for it and also apparently he, he also recorded autumn leaves did he i have and um, I'll Be Looking at the Moon is another song I've seen listed hmm. as an unreleased recording. By the way, I should point out that I really love the title track, The Sentimental Journey. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Bye Bye Blackbird, I think, was done exceptionally well. Yeah. You know, um, there's a case of, you know, 
the character voice working so well with these songs. Right. And um, works very well on my radio show, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and Bye Bye Blackbird also has, you know, one of the more unusual arrangements. It's the Maurice Gibb one. It's got the banjo, banjo mm. and piano. And, uh, and, and that's one of the things about this album, because of all the different arrangers and the different approaches they took. Each track is a bit different in, in terms of texture and... And, and sound and feeling and Bye Bye Blackbird is you know really it's it comes fairly early in the album um, so you haven't heard enough to know whether to be surprised but it's kind of the only track like that you know with the, with the banjo I think there might be a, a ukulele on one of them as well um, mm-hmm. you know, Whispering Grass maybe but mostly they stick to sort of, you know, brass and strings, you know, more conventional um, jazz arranging. But but this one does stand out by Blackbird. I wanted to mention something uh, about the album cover, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. I, I've always loved the cover to Sentimental Journey. Um, when I was a little younger and would see pictures of the album, I would have thought, that's weird. What is a building? It's a building. That's the album cover. But I don't know. Have uh, either of you been to Liverpool? I have. Yes. And okay. I've been to that bar. <laughs> right, okay. Right. Mm. Well, when I was there, I wasn't expecting to uh, see the Empress Pub, which is the name of, or at least it was the name of the pub. I don't know if it's still what's in the building now, but uh, I wasn't expecting to to come across the Empress Pub. I was kind of doing, seeing some sights on my own, and was at Ringo's uh, childhood home. And I guess if my memory serves correct, it was like down the block around the corner, <laughs> mm-hmm. there's the pub, the Empress. And I was like, oh, that's from Sentimental Journey. And if you look at the album cover very cleverly, nice little touch. There's little cutouts of uh, Ringo's relatives that are put in the windows of the Empress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like they're looking out the window and Ringo's in the doorway. Kind of small, got to look closely. But... Uh, that was sort of fun when I was in Liverpool to see the actual building. I have a few pictures that I took of it. And uh, I think I did something uh, where I did a little frame thing with my picture alongside a print of the Sentimental Journey album cover. Got a, I don't know. I have no idea where that is in my house. But, uh, you know, a little some fun there with the album cover as well. Do you find that? You should put, post that online. Yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm like. Where on earth? But I say that about a lot of stuff that I own here. And where on earth did I put that? Is that under pile twenty-seven, or or is that box thirty-four that that might be in? The one and only time I went to Liverpool, I was on a bus tour, and we stopped right in front of the Empress Pub. And there was a, a young boy who rode a bicycle. He rode right in front of the Empress Pub. He looked at me and he said, Ringo Starr used to live there, mate. And then he, drove, and then he, he rode away. And that that's was it. Sim- <laughs> that's, very, that's very similar to what happened with me. Now, I'm trying to picture, I think the Empress was down the block from, from where Ringo's childhood home was. Uh, Admiral Grove? Yeah, the one that was that in recent years had been in the news that it was going to get knocked down, but it was, it was uh, preserved. It was a. Um, I think that was Admiral Grove. Admiral, I'm all, yeah, I'm almost positive it was Admiral Grove, and I think the Empress is right, right near there. There's also a school, Ringo's school, right near there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went to uh, Liverpool, we did the bus tour, uh, and then the next day, uh, with my wife driving because you didn't want me on that side of the road. We went back to certain spots in Liverpool uh, that I wanted to see. So she, um, I think she parked. She pulled over, parked. I got out of the car and walked around the neighborhood taking pictures. And uh, I passed by Ringo's school. And today I would have probably gotten in a lot of trouble for doing this. But I was taking pictures of the school and the schoolyard was filled with the kids and they were all running over to me while I was taking pictures. Again, today, that probably would have put me put me in jail for, uh, you know, taking the, the weird guy taking pictures of uh, kids in the schoolyard. <laughs> but I'm taking pictures of the building. The kids come running over to me and they were like, Mr. Why are you taking pictures of our school? 
And I started to tell them, and they were like, taken back. You talk funny. <laughs> they probably also thought I looked funny, but, you know, when I was telling them, you know, you had a very famous musician here. One or two of them knew, oh, yeah, Ringo Starr, but a lot of them weren't too, didn't know who I was talking about that went to their school decades and decades earlier. Mm. You would have thought that had been taught that in school. Yeah, they were very yeah, young. Know. They were very young. Uh, I'd say that maybe uh, what we would consider possibly kindergartners, first graders. So maybe, you know, it didn't mean anything to, but a couple of them knew that they had a famous alum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I remember that day, you know, walking from around in that little area and that everything had to be pretty close to to each other. You know, take a, you know, well, I was went to Ringo's house, found the Empress. I think that was a pleasant surprise. I don't know if I knew that was there. And then the school. Uh, so I have to find that framed picture somewhere someday. Hmm. Well, some final thoughts here about this music of sentimental journey i just want to point out that um i think it's very important that Beatles fans are aware of an album like this or kisses on the bottom or any of the other music that the beatles did in their solo careers in particular which is pre-rock and roll because their love of music didn't start just with 50s rock and roll yeah. and um not only that but the music that they grew up with before rock did have an influence on the songs that they ended up recording as Paul McCartney has discussed, especially when Kisses on the Bottom came out, one of the biggest influences from that music was the fact that a lot of their songs had introductions that were separate from the rest of the song, which is something that they remembered from right. all this, this pre-rock. A song like Do You Want to Know a Secret or Here, There, and Everywhere had an introduction that led into the main part of the song, and that's something that they were accustomed to hearing in this music. You can tell, since I mentioned Bye Bye Blackbird, both Ringo and Paul recorded that song, but the way that Paul did it, which was much slower, had the long introduction to the song, which you cannot find anywhere on, on Ringo's version. So it's, it's important to know all this stuff because the Beatles' love for music goes far beyond just what they heard in the 50s. Yeah, and George, of course, is... You know, it was a Hoagie Carmichael guy who did a couple yeah. of Hoagie Carmichael songs. He did Cole Porter with True right. Love. Right, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that stuff, uh, that stuff did definitely, definitely, definitely did have uh, an influence an influence on them. I think John would have been a little hesitant to admit, you know, uh, that this stuff uh, uh, also appealed to him. But I'm sure... That uh, these songs and maybe indirectly also touched touched him and came through in ways in songs that he would write. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, one last question here. Um, as we look back at this album and noting that it was the start of Ringo's solo career, do you think that he was just trying to find himself at this point? Is it really an important release, as you had said, Darren? When you take a look at uh, the fact that he's now released 19 studio albums, or was this a misstep? Or do you look at this as really being, you know, uh, an important album that we should, no matter what, give a listen to and consider? Alan, you start. Okay. I thought of it as a misstep at the time. Uh, looking back now, I think maybe not. Um, I... Uh, looking back now, I kind of wish he would acknowledge it more than he does. But, I mean, the one of the two supposed missteps that I really like is Boo Coops of Blues. I, th I think that's I think that's a great album. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I, I it's one of those things that really has grown on me that was, uh, you know, a big surprise that it did. I never would have imagined, uh, you know, even listening to it half a dozen times. But, um, but you know, I think uh, it, it's one of those things that was definitely before its time and uh it kind of is an important part of his discography just because it's his first solo album i mean it, it it doesn't matter whether it's a misstep or not it's a it's it's a historical fact is what it is and i think that in retrospect and having heard a lot of what's gone on since then and the other people who've done 
albums like this, some of which some are better, some are worse. I think it's uh, I, I don't think it's something he really needs to be embarrassed about. Very good. And I, will, uh, I would say that it def, definitely, definitely was not a misstep. And I think its importance grew as the decades went by and as other musicians started doing this material. I doubt very much that and maybe maybe it was a, a little bit of a an influence, but I doubt very much that Linda Ronstadt or anyone else wanting to tackle this material thought, you know, Ringo's album was such an influence on me. And uh, but Ringo was, um, you know, this was, as Alan said, his first solo album. And it was whether you agree or not, it was unprecedented. And Ringo did, in fact, you know, do it first. And, and, and that would qualify him as a ground breaking artists when it comes to this uh, this sort of direction this sort of music this sort of album mm. and uh you know there are some uh, pretty mediocre ones out there without naming any artists that ringo's is uh, way superior to so uh you know i'm glad that uh we got to spend an hour and approximately an hour chatting about this album and maybe uh maybe the folks listening right now never given the album the time of day or forgot all about it or never even got it, get it, check it out. It's, it's, if nothing else, it's a lot of fun. And I think fun is what we all look for when we're listening to a Ringo star record. Hmm. Well, it's hard to add anything to what the two of you have said. I agree with everything that you just pointed out. And uh, yes, I think Ringo deserves a lot of credit for doing this before all these other artists. And most importantly, I think that I think these songs were executed really well. I think and here's works. to those bonus tracks coming out when the Ringo Starr box set comes out. Let's hope. I mean, um, years ago, he was mentioning an Apple box set, kind of like what happened with George. Right. So maybe something will happen there in the near future, we hope. All right. So before we go, why don't we give everybody our contact information, how they can get a hold of each of us individually or collectively. And why don't we start with you, Darren? Uh, just send, uh, if you'd like to send me an email, uh, email me at WFUV. And the email address is simple. It's my name spelled out, Darren DeVivo at WFUV.org. Or go to Facebook. I have two Facebook pages, but the one that I would uh, prefer you to go to is the one that's named Darren DeVivo on WFUV Radio. Just click like and we'll be connected. Send me a message there if you'd like. And, uh, you know, I, I do my best to try to kind of like have a back and forth with everyone who either messages me or maybe comments on a post. So uh, that that's that's the other main way uh, to uh, to find me and contact me. OK, Alan. OK, the easiest way to get to me is also through Facebook and I also have two pages. It doesn't matter to me which you use. One is Alan Cozen, and the other is Alan Cozen Remixed. I guess it depends whether you want more bass or more sitar. Um, <laughs> you can choose whichever one you want. There you go. You can email all of us, uh, or any of us, at thingswesaidtodayradioshow at gmail.com. That's one word, things we said today, radio show at gmail.com. We have a Twitter account, which is at things we said fab. And we have a Facebook page also for the show, which is things we said today, Beatles radio fans. And feel free to comment about any of our shows, whether it be on our Facebook page. We have a YouTube page as well. And um, you can comment on our Podbean page you know any number of ways you can get a hold of us and let us know what you think about our shows as for me ken michaels i also have a facebook page under ken michaels my email address is every little thing at att.net my website is kenmichaelsradio.com and before we go just want to make mention of a couple of things i just did an interview with dan richter dan was john and yoko's personal assistant at the time of the Imagine Sessions, and he's one of the many people that's interviewed in the documentary of John and Yoko, Above Us Only Sky. You can find that interview on my website on uh, Interviews Page 4. That's the name of the page. And coincidentally, 
without planning this, on that very same page, you also have interviews with Elliot Mintz, with Jack Douglas, and Michael Epstein, who is the director of John and Yoko, Above Us Only Sky. And Elliot Mintz and Jack Douglas were also interviewed in that documentary. So four people involved with the documentary are all there on that same page. Also, I have a new uh, contest, a special contest on my website, which starts on April the 30th, in which you can win a brand new CD by Lefty and the Hat Man. That is the new album from a group that includes Mark Mann, the guitarist who I interviewed recently that I talked about in our last show. He worked on George Harrison's Brainwashed album. He performed at the concert for George. He cleaned up the demos for Free as a Bird in Real Love to make them ready for Paul, George, and Ringo to overdub their parts. He has a new band out, Lefty and the Hat Man, a new CD called Deja Blue, and you can win that on my website with a very uh, easy contest in which uh, you can win that CD. So that's all at KenMichaelsRadio.com. Okay? All right. That's it for this show. This has been so much fun talking about Sentimental Journey, Ringo's first album. And so, for Darren DeVivo and Alan Cozen, I'm Ken Michael saying thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs> 